and welcome to Restoration. Um, my name is Ryan. If you're new here, welcome. Uh, we know that being new to a community like this is definitely um, takes a lot of courage uh, to, to go anywhere for the first time. So if you are new, we're just so glad you're here. And we want you to know that out on our info table, we actually have a gift for you. It's not one of those things where you got to fill something out and give us all your information and then we give you some junky coffee cup. But we actually have we we actually have a gift card for you to go get good coffee, and you don't have to give us a thing. So if you're new, just go up to the table, grab that. It says thank you for coming, and we just want to thank you for coming. So um, we're going to take our offering right now. It's just another way we uh, declare Jesus as Lord over our lives. And so if you're new to this place, you don't have to um, you don't have to participate in that. But for the rest of us, this is for us to be a part of what God's doing around here. So, hey, I just have one really main announcement, and then I'm gonna invite someone special up here. Um, next, no, two Sundays from now, I stopped myself, February 10th is House Church Sunday. So we will not be meeting here, meaning we're gonna be meeting in four different homes, depending on where you live. Um, and, and if you haven't gotten an invitation to that yet, Okay. You don't have to raise your hand right now, but if you haven't gotten an invitation, we want you to get an invitation for that. So you got to let us know. Um, you may have not given us information before or whatever. We would love for you to be a part of that. It's a really uh, smaller group of people gathering in homes. There's teaching and worship and like a potluck breakfast. So we would love for you to be a part of that. We're going to practice what it looks like to be uh, a church like the early church. Um, in two weeks. So I'd love for you to be all in on that. So let us know. You can also go to the website, check out the map, um, and to see where your house is. I want to invite someone up who is going to teach today, um, my friend Gabe Nip. Um, Gabe, come on up. Gabe, Gabe and Brooke and their daughters were a part of this place. You can clap. <laughs> Gabe and Brooke and their daughters were a part of this place back when we met on Sunday nights. Um, and uh, Gabe was also very much involved, so was Brooke, and children's, Gabe in teaching, and he was even ahead of our leadership team, and then they bailed out on us and moved to the Springs. So, but we are so pumped to have Gabe back up here on stage as part of our, really our teaching team from Extension, so welcome Gabe. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. Well, it's good to be back here. Uh, just like Ryan said, this, this was our church and this is our community. And uh, seeing, it's fun to see familiar faces. It's fun to see new faces uh, in the couple years that we've been gone. And so um, good to be back. Let me pray as we get started. Father God, we sit and wait for you. We anticipate that you will meet us in this time. I pray that you would use my words and the work I've put in, but more that your spirit would be moving in people's minds and hearts as it has been through the worship. Continue to move. Move us to where you want us to be, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're moving through Daniel 2, and I want to start this morning with a story. Uh, 
Brooke and I, we have two girls, and they are ages nine and six right now. And uh, when our nine-year-old was one, we took a vacation down to Florida. And so went to Florida, that's right. Uh, my parents went with us, and we took, them, took our one-year-old to the beach one day, uh, as you do. And one-year-old at the beach is mostly uh, sand management, so you're trying not to let her eat too much sand. And then, as the good parents we are, we said, Let, let's go out into the ocean. And the ocean's loud and kind of intimidating to a one-year-old. But we coerce her, as the good parents we are. We're going to take you out into the ocean. We'll carry you the whole time. And so we pick her up, and we carry her out into the ocean. And it gets deep, as it does when you go in the ocean. Uh, but out a little ways is a sandbar. And so we, you know, you pass through the deeper water, and you go out to the sandbar. And then it's, the water's just like shin deep. And uh, Ellis, our one-year-old, can kind of walk around in it. And we're walking for a while then, parallel to the beach on the sandbar. And so we're walking down, and my parents are way down here, and uh, it's a fun time. And then we say, okay, the, the beach now comes to a point. Let's turn and go back. But rather than go back on the sandbar, we'll cross through the deeper water and walk back on the beach. Great plan. So we start, we pick up Ellis again and start walking across this deeper water, and we realize it drops off faster here at this point. And before we know it, the water's like up to our armpits. And we're holding Ellis kind of out of the water. And there is current here. And the current is pushing us toward the beach. But between us and the beach is water that now we don't know how deep it is. And so the current's pushing us, and we're moving into this deeper and deeper water. And we're holding Ellis up, and the water's coming up up, up, and Brooke and I, we're, we start to like pass Ellis back and forth because she's heavy, and the whole time we're trying to smile, like, this is great, because the one thing you don't want, if you're holding a toddler above your head, you don't want a toddler who's upset and worried and squirming above your head, so we're like, oh, isn't this fun, and then, and then the water starts to splash, like, we're sputtering, and you're, you know how you're kind of on your tiptoes and it's a little bit too deep for you? That's where we are. Literal walk on the beach. Two minutes later, all of a sudden, we're like, we are in trouble here. This is not good. I'm going to leave us there. You'll see whether we made it out or not later. <laughs> and I want to you to open your Bibles or your phones to Daniel chapter 2. As Ryan's been moving through Daniel, remember, Babylon has taken over Israel, taken Israel into exile, and Daniel and his friends are working out what does this mean to live as an Israelite, to follow Yahweh God in exile. And so, Last chapter one, this was worked out through eating of vegetables. How do we keep our identity through what we eat, through uh, names that are given to us? How do we work this out? And I know Ryan has talked about, and scholars have used this term, creative minority. We are a minority here. How do we creatively work out our faith in this place? And so chapter one ends with Daniel and his friends kind of passing the first test. Things go well. 
And they are advisors to the king. They're some of the wise men that the king relies on. Things are going great. Walk on the beach like, hey, we're figuring this out. The water and the current is about to get, get to come higher. Things are about to turn south. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, we're just going to start out here. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. A good way to talk to a king. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what the dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. So the king is grumpy when he has not slept well. We know this. And he says, tell me the dream and interpret it. And we kind of go through the text and we realize that the king says, I don't totally trust these guys. I don't, maybe they're just going to, blow smoke and give me kind of whatever interpretation I want. If they can tell me what I dreamed and the interpretation, then I know that they're telling the truth. Obviously, these, these astrologers, these advisors are, they don't like this. They're frightened. And they say, oh, king, then there's some back and forth. Tell us the dream. And the king says, nope, I'm not going to do it. And so the order goes out that these advisors to the king are going to be executed. Now, remember, Daniel and his friends, they are some of the advisors. Now, they weren't at the king's bedside in the middle of the night, but we're going to pick this up in verse 14, if you're following along, of what happens as Daniel and his friends hear about this. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Always a good strategy. If someone wants to do something like this to you, ask for time. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes the times and seasons he deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So first thing, 
in my Bible, that last bit I read is broken out into a poem, all just kind of regular text and then a poem. And whenever you see a poem broken out in scripture, this is a sign to you from the author, slow down, just like I did as I was reading, slow down, pay attention. This poem is important. This has the point of the story. And the point that Daniel gets, we haven't even seen what the dream was or the interpretation. The point that Daniel says is God is in control. He's the one in charge of kings. He's the revealer of deep things. I can make a poem too. God is in control and there's a different story going on than the one that's obvious. Sure, Daniel's been hauled off to Babylon and now he's threatened with death, but in this place he says, oh, wait a second, there's another story happening. Something deeper is going on and I trust that God is in control here. So we're gonna see what that is. Daniel goes back to the king and we're gonna scroll down to verse 31 and see what the story is, see how God is in control. So Daniel, we pick it up as Daniel is talking to the king. And he says, your majesty looked, this is the dream, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. So this is the dream the king has. This must be very vivid because he wakes up and is frightened by it. And then Daniel goes on to interpret the dream. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, this head of gold on the statue, you are that head of gold. Again, a good thing to say to a king, right? You're the head of gold on the statue. And Daniel says, after you will come another kingdom, the silver, and after that will come another kingdom, the bronze, and after that will come another kingdom, the iron, and the iron, obviously, it becomes brittle, the feet are baked with clay. And in verse 44, he continues on and he says, in the time of those kings, in the future, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to the end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. This dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So all these kingdoms are coming through. Daniel says, this is, this is the vision of the future. And again, how does Daniel hear this? As the speaker of it, as it was revealed to him by God, 
he is reminded again, oh, yeah, God is in control. You can see why he had this poem. God is in control. He's in control of these kings. His kingdom is coming is what Daniel says. I know that I'm threatened with death, but there's another story, a deeper reality that's happening here. On the beach in Florida, Brooke and I are literally passing our daughter back and forth. Water's crashing over us. We're spitting salt water, feeling very nervous. And all of a sudden, a jet ski out of nowhere pulls up. And on the front is some guy I've never seen before. And on the back is my 60-year-old mom who says, hey, I was watching you. I just found this guy with a jet ski, and we came over here to help out. Like another story is happening. All I knew is the water was crashing over me, but somebody else was watching and helping. This is the story that Daniel sees. Oh, something else is going on. All I see is the bad stuff. Nebuchadnezzar hears this dream. And, and at the end of chapter 2, he says, oh, Daniel, you've interpreted the dream. Thank you. This is right. But Nebuchadnezzar hears something a little different, right? He's the one who has power and control. And Daniel's saying, your power and control isn't all that you think it is. There's another kingdom that's coming. God's kingdom is the full story, what is really happening. And this story subverts the other stories we come across, the story of Nebuchadnezzar in power. No, that's not the end of the deal. This story subverts for us other stories. I think about politics today and the acrimony in politics and how we look a lot of times at eh, politics. That's, if we can just get things right, that's going to be best for us. That's going to save us. Or how I look at, you know, your 401K or the right insurance. Or if we have enough money in the bank, that's what's going to save us. Or a lot of times even there's this idea of if I can just be true to myself and act that way all the time, which I don't know exactly what that means. But if I can just do that, that's what's going to save me. And all those stories are not the story that God's saying. God's saying, no, it's my kingdom. My kingdom is filling the whole earth. And I don't say this this morning so that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, we went to church. Perfect. God's kingdom. Now we just need to wait for it some more. This kingdom, this idea is a call to work. Because the question that Daniel's asking and the question that he responds to is how can I show this kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's life today? We have the same question for us. How can we show this kingdom that has already come in the world around us? And for Daniel, it's for the good of the society. He saves these astrologers. He saves these wise men. How can we point to this kingdom? The theologian and writer N.T. Wright, he says, an essential part of our theological and missional task today is to tell this story. God's kingdom is the ultimate reality. Is to tell this story as clearly as possible 
and allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story to the world. So how do we do this? Do we need to start interpreting dreams? No. There's another layer to what's going on here. My Bible, as it talked about Nebuchadnezzar's vision, it, talked about, it used the word statue. Other translations used the word image. Nebuchadnezzar saw an image. And image language takes us immediately back to the beginning of the story. We've seen kind of where the story's going. But this also points back to the beginning of the story, to Genesis chapter 1. Remember, in Genesis 1, God creates the earth, and the earth is good. And then at the end of his time creating, Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28, there's a little poem, again, the author telling us, here's what to pay attention to. And it says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You are created in my image. Nebuchadnezzar's vision points to this idea. And then have rule, have control. Like, in my image, have control over these things. I've heard somebody recently say, it's like God creates everything and then culminates in creating man and woman and then says, tag, you're it. You get to run the show here. Image, being created in God's image, is tied to how we rule and reign. And we have a choice then of whether and how much we reflect God's true image. And there's times we say, oh man, do you see the way that person uh, lives his or her life? Do you see the way she cares for her kids? Like that is bearing God's image. And then there's other times we say, oh, that is not really bearing God's image. Nebuchadnezzar, who doesn't get what he wants and threatens to cut people into pieces and turn their houses into rubble, probably not bearing God's image. And so bearing God's image then is linked to this idea of how we care for this world that he has given us. And traditionally, Christians call this idea stewardship, but a lot of times we reduce this idea of stewardship to how we spend our money. And it's so much more than that. It's how we care for the environment. It's how we care for our relationships, how we care for our work, uh, how we care for our coworkers, and yes, how we care for our money as well. And when you care well for God's world, when you bear his image well, you are going back to what N.T. Wright said. You are showing the end of the story, the ultimate reality. You are showing who you think and who you believe is in control. And let me unpack that. Kings in ancient times would take, would make images or statues of themselves and set them around their kingdom. It's like if I had a statue of myself made and set it 
you know, in my office and said, I'm the ruler of this office. Uh, that sort of idea, statues of themselves. And so you could be walking around and you could say, oh, there's an image of Nebuchadnezzar. This is his land. He is the ruler here. Images or statues point to who rules. God doesn't do that, does he? God doesn't set statues around. He says, you have my image. You are here to point to who is ruling and reigning in the way that you bear my image. Nebuchadnezzar sees this idol, has this, this image of an idol, of a man. And I believe the text is telling us that Nebuchadnezzar is projecting his own image and saying, oh yeah, let me represent myself. How can I project myself? And it's a terrifying image. And so the text brings an essential question. Am I most interested in projecting my image or am I most interested in reflecting God's image? Each night when we put our girls to bed, we ask them a series of questions. This is just part of our bedtime routine. And the first thing we do is we say, who made you? And they say, when they're in the right mood uh, and not joking with us, but no, they say, God made me. God made me. Because we want to remind them of Genesis 1 again and again. And then we say, how did God make you? And they're nine and six. And so they say things like, God made me creative. God made me kind. God made me artistic. God made me strong. God made me brave. We want them to embody this. You are created in God's image. And we don't, we don't ask this last, last question every night, but some nights we push it a step further and we say, well, why does God want you to be kind? Why does God want you to be creative? And they talk about uh, being kind to others and that sort of thing and always come to this place of, well, God is kind. God is creative and he wants me to show the world what he's like. God wants us to show the world what he's like. That declares his rule and reign. We don't always get this right. In fact, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar has projecting his own image, things progressively get worse. We see head of gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay, things aren't getting better. We're moving from like pure metals to more and more disorder. And that's what happens when we take things in our own hands, when we try to take control. And so again, God said, well, I will send my son. I will send Jesus and he will bear my image, model it for you and help you to do it as well. And so Paul after Jesus comes, Paul writes to the church in Colossae. This is chapter one. Paul writes about Jesus. The son is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. The son bears, Jesus bears the image for us. He steps into that space. And, and Paul, for, for good readers of the Bible, we say, oh, Genesis 1, image of God, firstborn of creation. Genesis 1, what comes right after 
bearing God's image, rule and reign, who is in control. We should expect that when we see image language. What does Paul say next? For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Authority? A little bit right there. Paul just goes on and on. Christ has authority here. Christ is that mountain, right? Filling the whole earth. His kingdom is here. He has come and done it once and for all. And so the invitation he has for us, just like Daniel had this invitation, is participate in this kingdom. Step into it. Let Christ be both our model, our guide, and let his spirit fill us to do this same thing. Where can we proclaim God's rule and reign? And when we do so, this isn't just for the good of the church. This is for the good of the whole world when we proclaim God's rule and reign. Christians have been doing this for centuries. In the Middle Ages, Christians said, man, there are tons of people who are sick. We have to do something more about this. They created the idea of the hospital. Let's have buildings where people come in and we can care for them. Similarly, schools, they said, oh, we, we need to teach people. We need, we need to help people live up to their potential. Uh, similarly, wherever you see the Bible is preached, very quickly after that, you get a written language when if the Bible somewhere where there's no written language. And very quickly after that, people learn to read. There's potential for the good of society. Daniel influences the government. He steps in, talks to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, pointing Nebuchadnezzar to God. I was talking to someone, I remember, a little while ago, and he was talking about a business that he owned. And he sold insurance and had a number of people working for him. And he said, I didn't like going to work. It was no fun at all. And he said, then I got this idea. How can I proclaim God's rule and reign? And it changed everything. How can I bring good to the people, the employees who are under me? And he said, I give them freedom. I give them more benefits. We started just giving money away wherever we could. And he said, it was the most fun and enjoyable place to work. And he wasn't proclaiming the gospel overtly all the time, but he was proclaiming God's rule and God's reign. This is where God is. And if Christ is in control of everything, if we trust that Colossians 1 verse, we're called first to point it out everywhere. And second, it takes away this battle mentality that we so often have. There's a famous Christian artist, Mako Fujimura, who has a great quote. And he says, culture is not a territory to be won or lost. I mean, culture is not a territory to be won or lost. Christ has won. He is in control but a culture is a resource we are called to steward with care. 
taking you back to Genesis 1. Culture is a garden to be cultivated. You can tell he's, he has read Genesis 1 and thought about how do we bear this image. This is how we subvert other stories. Not when we go in, how can we win this battle? But when we go in and say, yeah, how can we cultivate this? Christ is in control here too. How can I point that out? One one of the things that I feel sad about, and I, I'm a child of the 90s and the Christian bookstore. I, I grew up going to the Christian bookstores. And I know Ryan has talked over the past few weeks about how Christians were no longer in power in America. Christians now, again, using that term creative minority. How can Christians be a creative minority in this place? The Christian bookstore is a sign of how we've stepped to the side. Not that culture pushed us away. We stepped to the side. We said, oh, we're just going to do our own music and books over here. And, okay, you guys don't have to pay any attention to us. We just step back. Rather than saying, how can we take our music and our literature and engage in culture and influence it and point to another story. How can we bear God's image? I think this story also points us out to the idea, and I know I am tempted to do this, to just throw my hands up sometimes and say, it's not even worth it. Like, look at politics today. It's not even worth it. Look at a variety of places. Oh, I could try to do that. Nobody's going to pay attention. It's not worth it. This story says the exact opposite. It says, oh, no, Christ is in control. You need to refuse to throw your hands up and say, no, where can I bear God's image? That's what Daniel does. And Daniel... Is he's in the court in Babylon, and he's with the astrologers and the wise men. And after Babylon, as we know, you know, Babylon, the golden head, the silver chest, the next kingdom is the Persian kingdom. And Daniel bridges that gap. He's, he's an advisor to the king of Persia as well with the astrologers and the wise men. And the other kingdoms, the Greeks, the Romans come. Uh, but the Persians last. They're just kind of on the periphery. They're out of a lot of the power. But they last. And the Persians, their wise men, will, in a few hundred years, cross the desert and go worship a baby child and say, oh, this is the king that we have been waiting for. And the Bible doesn't make strong connections here, but I, I wonder, Daniel's influence pointing to God hundreds of years before, and then we see the Persians show up on the scene again, right out of Daniel 2. There's a new kingdom that's coming. So where this morning... Can you bear God's image? Where is God calling you to say, I need to point to his rule and reign here? And I think one place 
as, as you ask yourself that question, is to say, where do I feel underwater? Where do I feel like the water is just over my head? The currents are pushing me where I don't want to go. And I'm just stuck. Because there's another story happening. And God has a jet ski. It's going to be good. The end of the story is God has a jet ski. And so what does that call you to do in this space now? How can you influence people at work? Where is God calling you to step into a space for the good of society to point to his rule and reign? May we be people who are creative and courageous as we bear God's image and subvert the world stories to say God is in control. Let me pray for us.